we can learn a lot from this truth about turtles. The, the thing about turtles is they make no progress until they're willing to stick their necks out. Isn't that true? Um, another way to say this, no one stubs their toe standing still. In many areas of life, we have to be willing to feel a, a bit of risk. If we're going to reap what rewards may be possible. You know, this is true in, if we, if we want to have like valuable lives in spiritual lives, if we would like to be used of God in, in the positive sense of that idea, we're going to have to take on some risk. A guy named Hudson Taylor, great man of faith who founded the China Inland Mission years and years ago, he said, unless there is an element of risk in our exploits for God, there's no need for faith. And that's so true. The Apostle Paul, whom we've been reading, he was certainly not averse to risk. Once looking back over his risk-filled career, read with me what, what Paul read. Oh, I don't think I have it on there. Listen with me to what Paul read. He said, looking back over his career, five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with a rod. Once I received a stoning. Three times I suffered, I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I spent adrift in the open sea. I've been on journeys many times, in dangers from rivers, robbers, my own countrymen, Gentiles, dangers in the city, in the wilderness, at sea, dangers from false brothers, in hard work and toil through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, many times without food, in cold and without enough clothing. Probably none of us will have to face risks like those. That's just not part of being a Christian in America, mercifully. But make no mistake, if we want our lives to count, we're going to have to face some risk. And overwhelmingly, most commonly for us, those are going to be interpersonal risks. Because if we are going to be used of the gospel in any way, we're going to have to deal with people. And people are risky. Our risks are things like betrayal, rejection, those sorts of hurts are our risks. And we know how those things feel and how scary they are. That's why it can feel a whole lot safer to spend your life in sort of a shell of your own making. But C.S. Lewis has a warning for you. If you tend to stay in your shell and refuse to stick your neck out, refuse to reach out with real love. C.S. Lewis would warn you this way. He writes, To love at all is to be vulnerable. 
Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give it to no one. Wrap it up carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in a casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, your airless, your heart will change. It won't be broken. It will become unbreakable, but impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. In the book of Galatians we've been studying through, Paul is writing to people who are being led astray by false teachers who have perverted the gospel. But these aren't strangers Paul is writing to. They're his friends. They've been through stuff together, as we will see this morning. And these people whom Paul loves, as they reject the message Paul brought, they're rejecting Paul too, and it hurts. And as Paul addresses that hurt today, we will be able to learn some things about what to do when we are hurt. How to reach out, how not to reach out with the gospel or with the encouragement or with whatever ministry God has for us in the lives of someone else. How to do that with these risky folks called people and what to do when it hurts. Let's read our passage together this morning. This is Galatians chapter 4 verses 12 through 20 which read this way. I beg of you, brethren, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You have done me no wrong, but you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you for the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as you would an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Where then is that sense of blessing you used to have? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. So have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? They, they eagerly seek you, but not commendably. But they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. But it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner. And not only when I am present with you, my children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you, but I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. There's our passage. We start here in verse 12, which can be a difficult verse for us to, to make sense out of. But what this is, at least the first half of the verse, is a shorthand version of Paul's sort of uh, the way he tended to share the gospel and plant churches in a given area. His, his method of evangelism could be boiled down like this. Become like me, 
because I became like you. And he begs them, become like me because I became like you. We, we've got to understand what that, what that means, and it's hard. It's hard because going around telling people you should become like me sounds super cringy. <laughs> In fact, for the most part, my pastoral advice to you this morning is don't do that. <laughs> don't, uh, don't tell people uh, to be just like you. What does Paul mean by that? The only thing we have to go on, Paul has to be talking about what he's already said about himself in this book of Galatians. It's the only way to make any sense about this. So become like me. For Paul, it can't mean I have done such a good job of being the kind of guy God likes that if you just become like me, God will like you too. I'm killing this behavioral uh, Christianity thing. So just become like me, and then maybe God will like you as much as he likes me. Paul said exactly the opposite of that thus far in the book of Galatians. Paul has said those behavioral rules, I died to the law so that I might live for God. Paul said, I, I gave up trying to please God through my behavior. So when Paul says become like me, he's not talking about primarily being behaviorally good enough that God will, will like him. Become like me is, understand me is not the point. It's no longer I who live, Paul says. It's Christ who lives within me. Justification doesn't come uh, by works of the law, Paul has said over and over and over. So when Paul says, become like me, he's begging his friends to adopt what he has adopted for his position before God. Follow the gospel of Jesus Christ in your beliefs, in your, in your life. That's the, the become like me. The second part of this statement might be more confusing than the first part. As Paul says, become like me because I became like you. We might expect Paul to say something like, become like me because I have become like Jesus. But that's not what he says. He says, become like me because I became like you. So let me get this straight, Paul. When you headed out for Galatia, this region where there were no Christians, you just, there were just pagan folks living up there. The first thing you did was become like the pagans? You know what the answer to that question is? It's yes. That is what he did. Paul expounds on this part. The I became like you. He talks about it with more words in 1 Corinthians, and he says it this way. When he writes to that church in Corinth, he says, For since I am free from all, I can make myself a slave to all in order to gain even more people. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to gain the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, to gain those under the law. To those who are free from the law, I became like one free from the law, though I'm not free from God's law, I'm under the law of Christ, to gain those free from the law. 
To the weak I became weak in order to gain the weak. I have become all things to all people so that I might by all means save some. That's a fuller treatment of Paul's words in Gal- to the Galatians. He just says, I became like you. The term for what Paul is talking about is called contextualization. The Nine Marks organization uh, defines contextualization this way. Contextualization is the process of making the gospel and the church as much at home as possible in a given cultural context. I've said this before, one of the amazing things about the gospel and about uh, the church as an organization, as a group, is the gospel and the church will fit in any culture on the face of the earth at any time period in history. There are very few things you could say that about. And if we fail to contextualize, we will set up barriers that should not be there for the gospel and for the church. We will, a failure to contextualize will 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 cause us to put cultural barriers up that we present as if they're biblical absolutes and they will become barriers to the gospel. The the American church learned this in the 20th century. Early in the 20th century, uh, mission efforts, they would spread out and go, let's say, to Africa and they would get to some tribal area and they would present the gospel and have success and it would make sense and people would accept the gospel. And then these folks would say, okay, now that you believe the gospel, we've got to build a, a, like a white building with a steeple. It's got to be filled with pews. And they're like, what are pews? Uh, and, you know, their, their tribal garb, they literally would tell the men, like, you have to start wearing pants now. And they're like, what are pants? Uh, and that stuff became barriers to the gospel that shouldn't be there. And it was presented as if they're, they're biblical absolutes. Paul was a master at contextualization. When he went into a new context, a new culture, he wanted to see what, what are the things that are important culturally here. Uh, what are these people like? Sort of where do they live? What do they eat? Right? And, and the, what will the church look like here but still be the church? Paul would not compromise on the gospel. He would not compromise on uh, what God called sin and things like that. But he did want to know how could this culture glorify Christ and still stay this culture. That's what this definition means when it says the process of making the gospel in the church as much at home as possible in a given context. Because when you compromise on the gospel, you're not making the gospel at home. You're erasing the gospel, right? If you are uh, ignoring what the Bible says the church must be, must do to make people comfortable, it's not the church. I don't know what it is, but it's not the church. So Paul Paul goes places And he says, become like me, which means 
I have a message you must understand and adopt for yourself. You must become like me in an understanding I need rescued from my righteousness more than I need figuring out how to make myself righteous. You need to know how to die to yourself and live for Christ. Become like me, but Paul says, I became like you. And this is a shot at the false teachers that have showed up in Galatia because this is the part they don't do. Um, actually, they say, become like me and then become like me. <laughs> the false teachers, they say, if you want to be a real Christian, you have to adopt our culture of an Old Testament Jewish person. You have got to put on all of the things we hold dear. Paul says, I want you to become like me and still somehow be you. I became like you. And as we're going to see, anytime we have either side of that sort of equation fouled up, we're going to have problems. If we refuse the become like me, or if we failed to become like you, our efforts are going to be hampered with the gospel. More on that in a little bit. Paul says, he ends this verse by saying, you have done me no wrong. This is Paul saying, I'm about to get real personal and talk about the troubles in our relationship, Galatians. But I want you to understand, ultimately you're not harming me. Paul is in Christ. Paul has called himself an heir. Paul stands to inherit all things for all of eternity. Paul's going to be fine, ultimately. The Galatians, by rejecting Paul, aren't hurting Paul, ultimately, but Paul still hurts because they are rejecting what's best for them. So before he says anything else, he says, you're not really hurting me, but now Paul's going to get real personal. In verses 13 through 16, Paul reminds the Galatians about the beginnings of their relationship. And then he wants to, and he asks them, what has changed? Paul says he first met the Galatians, or at least he spent enough time with them to really get to know them well and really have this close relationship he obviously has. That happened because of, uh, this translation says, a bodily ailment. Your translation might say an illness. The Greek word just says weakness. Paul says, you remember the reason I was with you for so long initially was because of a weakness I had. And we don't know what this was. Paul doesn't tell us. You know why? Because he wasn't writing to us. He was writing to the Galatians and they knew what this was. Sometimes when we're reading, when we're reading the New Testament epistles, we have to remember we're reading someone else's mail. Right? This is a letter to someone else. They knew exactly what Paul was talking about. We don't. We do know from the book of Acts, while Paul was in Galatia, is the time he was stoned nearly to death. Like people threw big rocks at him till they thought he was dead. Uh, that might take a while to recover from. <laughs> uh, and so maybe that's what this weakness was. 
It could have been the thorn in his flesh Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians. There's a malaria theory that I won't share with you. People thought Paul got malaria, but for whatever reason, he had to stay there for a while and recover probably longer than Paul originally planned. And then Paul says something cool. My condition was a trial to you, yet you didn't reject me. That right there is the the entire theme of the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is a book Paul writes much later in his ministry to a different church, churches in Corinth, and there's false teachers in that city too, and here's why he writes that. There are false teachers in Corinth, and they are telling people to reject Paul and his message because they go, look at Paul. How can you possibly believe God is with that guy? He's all the time getting arrested, flogged, imprisoned. They let him out. He gets imprisoned again. He got stoned nearly to death one time. He's sick all the time. He's weak. He's poor. If God were with somebody, wouldn't he be more, you know, like us? Rich, powerful, handsome, influential. That's what 2 Corinthians is about. And that's what Paul mentions right here. Paul says, when I got there, I was so weak. You had every reason to reject me. But you couldn't have welcomed me any better if I were an angel or if I were Jesus himself. Do you remember how our relationship started? I was so needy, but you learned that you were needy because you needed the message I got and God used this weakness to put us together And then Paul says, what happened? What changed? Now Paul knows the answer to that question. Paul says, have, oh, by the way, the the gouge out your eyes thing, I think it's just a figure of speech. I don't think Paul was having eye problems, though that's another theory here. I think this is Like if I said to you, somebody else, man, they were so kind to me, they would have given me the shirt off their backs. You wouldn't think I was having actual shirt problems, right? That was our relationship. You loved me so well. What changed? Paul says, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? How many of you have ever been in a relationship where you feel like the only way I can save this thing and keep this thing going is to pretend things I don't really believe? Paul says, I know what changed. You have rejected the truth. You're waffling on the truth. And Paul was the master at contextualization. He wanted to, as much as possible, become like the people he was ministering to, but he would not compromise the truth. Paul's saying, if we are enemies, I am not the one who has changed. And if you're going to reject me, understand it's because I will not waffle on the truth. Paul loves these people, and it pains him 
that their relationship is in the state that it is in. But real love requires truth. Real love. Remember how we define love around here? Real love is, is the desire and the work to see what God says is best happening in someone else's life. If we don't have truth, we do not have love. The late Warren Wearsby used to say, truth without love is brutality. And love without truth is hypocrisy. We must speak the truth, Paul says elsewhere, to speak the truth with love. If we speak the truth without love, Wearsby says, it's brutality. And sometimes it feels good to us, I'm going to speak the truth, but it's really not because I want that person to accept the truth. I just kind of want to beat them up with the truth. I just want to be so right and them so wrong that I feel better about me. That's brutality. Truth without love is brutality, but, but love without truth is hypocrisy. If I just pretend to agree with you so you will like me, that's hypocrisy at best. The late Tim Keller says, loving someone without truth is mere sentimentality. Trying, I'll say, trying to love someone by just agreeing with them even when they're wrong is actually making an idol out of their acceptance of me. Does that make sense? Right? So if I'm in a relationship with you and I, well, I really love would require me to confront you but I know you won't handle it well and I want this relationship to continue. So what I really want is you to accept me or I want this relationship to continue. So that becomes the God and I have to sacrifice everything else on the altar of this relationship. So I just go along with what you say. That's not love. It's idolatry, it's sentimentality. Paul says... Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? The answer for some people in Galatia, I think, is yes. That's how Paul summarizes his methods. I came there. I became like you. We were great friends. Now I want you to become like me. I shared the gospel. I want you to follow God the only way you can through faith in Jesus Christ. But I'm not going to sacrifice the truth. Now Paul's going to contrast his methods with the methods of the false teachers who are on the ground in Galatia while he writes this letter. In verse 17, about them, Paul says, they, that's the false teachers, the Judaizers, they eagerly seek you, but not commendably. Yes, they're trying to convince you to, to join with them, but it's not good. They wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. Man, oh man, is this a page out of many playbooks. This has been going on. Shut you out so that you will seek them. This has been going on for eons. It's still going on today. Human beings are social creatures. We want to feel accepted. We want to feel a part, right? 
And it's very easy to use that inclination in, in other human beings sort of for nefarious purposes. It's very easy to get people to try to pursue your group by making them feel shut out, excluded elsewhere. This can work a couple of different ways. I will tell you this, this happens online. Uh, this happens from predators, happens from cults, happens from, by churches. Um, a lot of uh, LGBTQ plus uh, groups in, in schools, on college campuses, I want to make you, they want to make you feel shut out and isolated, and this is the only place where you'll really be, oh, you feel awkward, no, you feel like nobody gets you, right, which is like every 14-year-old ever, Right? You feel ice, you feel nobody gets you. Your parents don't get you. Nobody else will accept you, but you be. You, let us tell you like who you are, and we will celebrate and accept. Or in mass, when, when a bad like, ideology can take over the mainstream, then it becomes, we're going to make you feel shut out unless you join us. There will be consequences if you are shut out from the mainstream, right? You'll be bigoted. You'll be whatever. You'll be all those things. But folks, churches are guilty of this all the time. This is, in Paul's previous language, if you make people shut out so that they will seek to get in there, that is the become like me without any become like you. If we require people to, to change a great deal of change behaviorally before we can have anything to do with them, this is exactly what we're doing. Make you feel shut out so that you will do what it takes to be accepted. Verse 18, Paul uses a, uh, he uses a maxim, a common saying in his day. It, it reads here, it's always, it's, it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner. It probably translates better something like, good should only be sought through good. We might say the ends don't justify the means. He's saying, your opponents are using things like using things like shame, manipulation, exclusion to try to get you to join them. But you can't use like the devil's weapons to fight God's war. We shouldn't be using those things. It's not good. And, and, and Paul says, um, remember, I want to be like you as far as I can so that you will be like me. Don't listen to someone who says, you got to be like me to be like me. You know, one of the biblical goals in relationships is harmony. You know what harmony is in music? Harmony is when there's two different notes that go good together. Sometimes we make the mistake of requiring unison before we can get along. 
right? You've got to agree with me like lock, stock, and tommyhawk, as my granddad would say, right? You've got to agree with everything, whether they're biblical absolutes or not. Um, and if you don't, we're going to have problems. You know, harmony is the goal in relationships. We can be different and still go together pretty good. We really hear Paul's heart for the Galatians in the last two verses of our passage. This is a, uh, a weird-sounding metaphor to our ears because Paul compares himself to a birthing mother in, uh, in this verse. My little children, for whom I am once again in the anguish of childbirth. I want to say, Paul, you have a lot of experience in that, do you? Uh, but here's what, Paul, here's what Paul is saying. Paul obviously went through a great deal of pain while he's in Galatia. And I think Paul is saying, I thought the pain would end, you know, like if that was the time when you were reborn into Christianity, I thought the pain would end there. Now, moms, I don't have a lot of experience in this either. I need a, I need a ruling, moms. Does the pain completely end with the pains of childbirth, or can there be pains in motherhood that last a long time after the kids are born? There's pain later. Then Paul's metaphor checks out. Do you hear what he's saying now? He's like, I went through all that pain to get to know you, to see you reborn into the church, and here I am hurting again. It's a very warm illustration. But don't, wish, don't miss what Paul is saying about the purpose of his pain. Paul says, I was hurting, I, I came there in pain, and I'm hurting again, but I will hurt until I see Christ formed in you. That's the goal. Paul's not saying, I am going to keep pressing until I hear you tell me I was right all along. I'm going to keep pressing until you agree with me. That's not the goal. Paul said, that's how Paul could say at the beginning, you haven't hurt me ultimately. I'm not hurting because of the damage in our relationship as much as I'm hurting because you're rejecting the truth. My goal is not for you to like me and accept me. My goal is for you to accept Christ and have this living, breathing relationship with Christ so much so it starts to inform the way you live. I want to see Christ formed in you. Would that, oh, that that would be the goal of our relationship as friends, as brothers and sisters in Christ, as spouses, as parents, that what I really want to see is Christ formed in you more than I want you to agree with me, make me feel safe, comfortable, accepted, whatever. On this verse, John Calvin wrote, if ministers wish to do any good, let them labor to form Christ in their hearers, not to form themselves in their hearers. If we're not careful, that's what we, what we want in our relationships. It's just that feeling of acceptance. We had better get that from the only place it comes from ultimately. 
We better get our cups so full of the acceptance we have by God through faith in Jesus Christ that the rest of our interpersonal risks feel a lot less risky. And Paul ends to say, I long, ends by saying, I long to see you guys, Galatians, and I really want to change my tone with you. But I'm not going to compromise the truth to feel accepted by you. What do, we, what do we learn from this passage? There's a ton in this thing. First, I don't know if we learn this, but we're sure reminded people are risky. People hurt. Sometimes, I like, as I like to say, people are the worst. But listen, if we are not willing to risk the risk of dealing with people, we are going to waste overly safe lives. We may avoid some bruises, but there's no way of knowing what we will miss out on when we fail to stick our necks out for Christ, for the gospel, to encourage people who need encouraged, to see Christ formed in people who need him. We're reminded from this passage, real love confronts. Confrontation is not the most comfortable thing in the world for many of us. But real love requires it. It is okay to respond honestly to being hurt. In fact, sometimes love requires it. It's okay to understand, listen, I have not lost anything I stand to inherit for all of eternity, but this stinking hurts. And it's okay to go to someone and say, what changed? Real love confronts, but third, real love confronts toward the correct goal. Paul's main concern is for the well-being of his Galatian friends. Paul's main goal is not that he feels accepted, that he feels safe, that he feels welcomed again, that, that he hears them say he's been right all along and they were wrong. Paul's goal is to see Christ formed in them. That's why he confronts. And that's why, finally, we have got to contextualize without compromise. Paul said it this way, become like me because I became like you. If there's error on either side, we're going to have problems. If we refuse to reach out to be involved in the lives of people who aren't already more or less like us, our impact is going to be rather impotent. However, if all we do is the become like you part, we're going to have a completely different problem. 
we will compromise the truth. We'll have that idol of what I really want is you to accept me. And when that becomes the idol, now I can't, I can't violate that idol of your acceptance of me to tell you something you may not want to hear, which might just be the truth. And I know this is really, really hard. I, I brought up the, the LGBTQ issue because it's touching so many of our lives. Don't, I'm not saying this because that's an easy thing to pick on of those people out there. That ship sailed a long time ago. We are dealing with this, this stuff right now, and it's so tempting to say, I accept you and everything about you, and you're not doing anything wrong because I value this relationship so much. It's a great idea of, listen, I can become like you as far as I can, and the gospel allows. I'm not, I don't have to end this relationship, but understand, if you require me to compromise the truth, I can't. Why? Because my ultimate acceptance comes from somewhere else. We want to be in this become like me because I have become like you. We want to be like the best kind of taxi driver driver or Uber driver. Here's, I stole this illustration from someone. I heard this a long time ago. I'd love to give him credit, but I don't remember who it was. If, I, if you were in a city someplace and you got an Uber and I pulled up and my only goal was your comfort, you got in the back seat and it was the comfiest car seat you ever sat in, climate controlled, massage, TVs in the back of the seat, whatever music you want, snacks, drinks, it was wonderful. Your, com- your every comfort was taken care of. But if I didn't get you where you wanted to go, I would be a lousy Uber driver, even though you were very comfortable and accepted. The other error would be, if I showed up, I know where you need to go, but I don't want you getting your city filth all over my car. You got to shower before you get in here. Please put on these latex gloves. Don't touch anything. And I was just generally so miserable you hated the experience. Before long, it doesn't matter that I know where you need to go if no one gets in the car. Somewhere in the middle of that is become like me in what I've learned about Jesus. And I I want to get to know you and, and kind of walk with you where you're at. We want to reach out, meet actual, real people who are not just sinners in the abstract sense. Well, I know not everybody's perfect. No, they got actual, real junk that you know about. We need to be with people, real people. And they just might find some of our stuff too. We need to take some risks. People might get hurt. Some of those people might be us. But we need to be loving people toward the correct goal. See Christ formed in them. We're a bunch of turtles sometimes. We'll stick our necks out. It will be worth it. It'll be worth it. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you 
that we have heard the truth of the gospel. We have that. God, we want to work to see Christ formed in us, and we want to work to see Christ formed in those we know and love and care about. Help us know how to ask people to become like me and how to become like them as far as possible. Help us not to have the idol of acceptance or to speak the truth without love. God, you reached out to us um, and we want to just continue reach, letting you reach out through us. Help us do that well in a way that honors you that we might not put roadblocks up that don't need to be there. And when we get hurt, because people are risky, thank you that you will hold us while the pain fades. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Stan, let's finish our time together.